Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers discuss legal news, events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft, Sustinius, and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is Jack Sanker from Thompson, Brody, and Kaplan, and Mignon Martin from the Circuit Court of Cook County. In this episode, we're going to be asking a simple but serious question. What the heck is going on in Chicago with respect to crime? violence, and specifically, gun violence. We've heard so much about these issues in the national media in the last couple of years, perhaps especially on the presidential campaign trail, where Chicago is always a favorite punching bag for then-candidate Trump when it came to debates on gun control, on gun violence, sanctuary cities, police brutality, drug policies, really, you name it. So today we're going to talk with two people in the know about crime and violence in Chicago and other places, lessons that are most certainly applicable nationally, and we're going to try to differentiate between fact and fiction, a valuable commodity I think we'll all agree these days. Joining us today is Max Kaputsen from the University of Chicago Crime Lab and Amy Thompson, Deputy Public Defender of Cook County. Max, Amy, welcome to At The Bar. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jack and Mignon, why don't you uh, introduce our guests for a little bit for us? Okay. Amy is Deputy of Trial Support at Cook County Public Defender's Office. And Max is a Research Director at the University of Chicago Urban Labs. He has a PhD in Economics from the University of Michigan. That was succinct, just the way I like it. Thanks, guys. Uh, Amy and Max, we're thrilled to have you here to talk about the work that you both do. And if it all goes well, I hope we'll be able to get to the bottom of everything in a few short minutes and solve all of Chicago's problems and all of the problems that are facing all of American cities. So let's get started. Well, actually, you know what? Before that, we thought it would be helpful to set the scene a little bit. And we're going to start by establishing uh, what the two of you are really up against with this problem. It's horrible carnage. This is Afghanistan is not like what's happening in Chicago. People are being shot left and right. Thousands of people over a period, over a short period of time. This year, which has just started, is worse than last year, which was a catastrophe. They're not doing the job. Now, if they want help, I would love to help them. I will send in what we have to send in. Maybe they're not going to have to be so politically correct. Maybe they're being overly political correct. Maybe there's something going on. But you can't have those killings going on in Chicago. Chicago is like a war zone. Chicago is worse than some of the people that you report and some of the places that you report about every night. So, guys, putting aside for the moment the grammatical challenges presented by Trump, uh, I think his point was clear. And in between tweets, ironically fat-shaming the leader of North Korea and obstructing justice in the early morning hours when I think we can agree all the best decisions are made. Uh, President Trump has continued to make those kinds of assertions as president, um, as have those in his administration, including White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's used Chicago as an example to show how strict gun laws are supposedly ineffective at uh, reducing gun violence. Max, I want to start with you if we can. How bad is the gun violence really in Chicago? How does Chicago compare to other cities? And does the president have a point? Well, uh, I think there is some, perhaps some truth to what he's saying, although I think there's a lot, uh, a lot to, um, that one has to work through to get there. Um, I mean, first of all, Chicago certainly has, uh, has an issue with gun violence. I mean, if we had 700, over 760 people murdered 
last year in the city and thousands shot. That's that's not um, that's that's a that's a serious problem anyway. You cut it. Is that out of proportion to other cities? Well, that that's that's exactly where where I think one has to go first is is to realize that Chicago is uh, it's the third largest city in the country. So. If you're looking for a city that racks up a lot of homicides and a lot of shootings, yes, Chicago will will, will definitely do that, um, especially in a, with a year like last year. But if we're thinking about the homicide rate, which is I think a much better metric for sure. um, you know how much of a of a violence problem a city has, Chicago is is not is not by any means the leader. Uh, cities like St. Louis, Detroit, uh, New Orleans, they consistently have had Baltimore uh, have had higher homicide rates than than Chicago has. But again, that's not to you know, that's not to say that Chicago can just rest on its laurels. There's there's a lot of work to be done here. And what, what do you see as the root problems with Chicago, Chicago's gun violence, I should say? Yeah, I mean, there's um, there, there, are, there are a number of factors you could point to. Um, you know, the city has had famously um, uh, quite a great deal of, of uh, economic disparity, segregation, easy access to guns, certainly. I mean, last year in particular was, was I think, a, a, just a, a really jarring wake-up call for the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing a, you know, a 50% increase in your homicide rate in one year is, right. is not something most cities are accustomed to. Um, and there is not one easy um, explanation for why, you know, why last year was was what it was. Um, I certainly think that access to guns plays a significant role here. If you look at the, you know, the percentage of of us of, of crimes that are committed with a, with a gun here and their lethality, correspondingly, is just much much higher than so in a city like New let's, York. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. Let's sure. break that down. Uh, you said there's easy access to guns in Chicago, but as we heard, um, at least from the president and the administration, Chicago has some of the toughest uh, gun laws of any municipality in the country. A, is that true? And B, if that is true, why is there still easy access to guns? No, I, that, that talking point is woefully, woefully out of date. There have been a number of court cases that have significantly weakened the gun laws uh, in a city like Chicago. But even if the city had the strict gun laws that uh, people like Sarah Huckabee Sanders claim they have, uh, claim the city has, it's it, it, the, Chicago is not an island. Chicago mm-hmm. is surrounded by suburban Cook County in Illinois. It's surrounded by uh, other states that have much more lax gun laws like Indiana. You know, when I, if you drive to Indiana and purchase a gun and drive back, uh, no one's going to stop and check your trunk at the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can bring guns into the city with relative ease, and people do. Um, we know that. We know that from analyzing where the guns uh, were originally purchased that were recovered at crime scenes in Chicago. Certainly a large share of them come from uh, from suburban Cook County. And very few come from within Chicago. There are no licensed gun dealers in, in the city oh, limits. Is that right? Yeah, but if you go just outside, literally step just beyond the border of Chicago, you've got gun shops that are you know perfectly willing to sell to, to legal buyers. And those guns often within a matter of months end up in the hands of, uh, of people who use them in shootings. And if, if I understand the problem correctly, Chicago also has an unusually fractured gang system, which contributes to this violence. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's, that's the perception that, that folks who work in this space have, is that, that Chicago has a particularly fractured gun, uh, gang uh, ecosystem. I don't know really how that compares necessarily to other cities. Like if you, you know, pick up Baltimore or St. Louis, um, it might be quite similar there. Um, but I don't think Chicago is necessarily unique in that, res- in that regard. Okay. A- Amy, why do you think uh, Chicago has a gun violence problem that it has? I do want to just talk about that fractured gang mm-hmm. uh, violence. I, I worked in the courts for 26 years. And what I noticed over time is that um, turf wars, which weren't so much about turf anymore, were a lot more about um, reputation. And a lot of that came from the fact that um, the federal prosecutors in Chicago have been very successful 
with um, taking the heads off of large gangs. So because of that, uh, there was a lack of leadership. So it's, there's a hydra effect? It really is, yeah. And so all of a sudden, what used to be one major gang became several divisions within each gang, each having resentments about fighting over becoming the leader of whichever gang used to exist. Um, and really, the area is as small as block to block on the same street. So. That is something that you notice when you represent people from every faction of every gang um, over time, which you do as a public defender. When would you say some of that chopping off the head really started, um, you know, temporally? If we're looking at maybe if there is a relation between, you know, the trends and increases in certain types of crime and this kind of busting up of, of gangs and whatnot, do those correlate? Are they closely related, do you think? I think that it's it's hard to say exactly when. I think the federal prosecutions were very successful in the late 70s and early 80s, but they continued to destabilize the gangs, which was, of course, what they were trying to do. It's not like they were out there trying to promote, you know, good gang organization. They were trying to get rid of them. Right. Um, so, but as it continued over time, it was clear that any organization, and so as it went through the 2000s, it got more and more obvious. And then one of the things that Max brings up in his report is we don't really know what the effect of social media is. And really, they're just from rumors on the street, social media seems to be driving a lot of this resentment. How so? Well, Oh, I mean, you, you might come across examples like, um, uh, the example I like to use is in the past, you might have had a, one gang go into another gang's territory and say, tag a building, you know, just to announce that their presence, they were here. Today, you might have uh, a group of kids show up in a, in a rival gang's turf, pull out their phones, start recording a video or even, or even live streaming it over Facebook or what have you, and just, you know, show the intersection, show exactly where they are. So it's clear That's that they're, they're another, the other side. yeah, exactly. Taunt mm -hmm. them and let them know, look, we're here, we can be in your territory. Um, uh, people exchange threats over social media and, and things really rapidly escalate. I mean, it's, it, just, it just accelerates the pace of conversation uh, and, and results in these social disputes, these beefs over, you know, you name it, happening just at, at a much more rapid clip than, than in the past. And if you show up in a courtroom at 26th in California, it's very, which is the criminal courts building for anyone who isn't aware, um, it's really common for prosecutors to use Facebook pages and posts as evidence of intent in all of these crimes. <laughs> really? That's yeah. interesting. Checking in at a murder scene. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's really, it's not unusual for somebody to yeah. actually post their location on Facebook right before or after a shooting. So all that is to say, yeah, there's these issues. Um, I, I think... Some of the stuff that Max was touching on earlier with regards to comparatively where Chicago stands, you know, with other cities, um, I think that's something that, you know, maybe is worth a little bit more discussion if you want to maybe talk about that for a minute. Sure. I mean, I, I think uh, the most common comparison of Chicago uh, is, is New York for a variety of reasons. And the two cities may seem to be in a, quite a different place now, but they weren't always. Um, if you go back to, I think it was like in 1990 or 1991, both cities had about the same homicide rate. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's not too far back in the past. Uh, since that time, New York had, you know, an over 90% decline in its homicide rate, famously. And there are a variety of factors that, you know, might have led to that. Chicago saw also quite a substantial decline in, in its homicide rate. Um, and, and I think 2014 was the lowest year on record in, in recent memory. Uh, but then things backslid a bit, right? 2015 was a bit worse than 2014. 2016 was a lot worse than 2015. Um, but it's just worth remembering that, that you know, 
there are cities that uh, had very, very similar rates of crime to, to Chicago, um, and they've and a lot of them have experienced a lot of the same uh, same phenomena. Like in New York, for example, I, I'm pretty sure the the prosecutors there were were also going after the heads of gangs, and and it also fractured. I think the gang landscape in New York, but because the city is just so much safer now, no one no one's pointing a finger at the fractured gang landscape and saying, look, it's causing the violence in, in New York because New York is, you know, the safest big city in America. Sure. So we saw a, a sharp increase in 2014, 15, 16. What happened around then? <laughs> I, I, I wish I wish I had an answer for you there. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, you, you can point to some things that line up temporally, right? Things like um, uh, there was a massive decline in street stops that occurred right at the very end of 2015, beginning of 2016. This was coincident with the release of the Laquan McDonald video. Mm-hmm. And we'll uh, there, get into that later. Yeah. Yeah. Th- th- there <laughs> and, were some changes. And by street stops in Chicago, I believe we call that the contact card system, right? Right. There, some, there was something arguably similar in New York, known as stop and frisk. That's what we're talking about, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and, and I think the president mentioned that in one of his, one of his stump speeches, um, that you know, we need to bring back national stop and frisk, or introduce national stop and frisk. I mean, it's worth looking at the example of New York. Uh, they reduced their use of this tactic by almost, well, by over 90%, I think, over the course of about a, a year or two. Uh, and crime continued to fall in New York City. Really? Um, and, and when you look at what happened in Chicago, I mean, you have to kind of weigh, weigh what happened here against what happened in New York. Is it, is it really the case that ISRs, that that's what they're now, now they're known, uh, the contact cards are ISRs. Is it really the case that the decline in ISRs uh, at the beginning of 2016 was what caused the increase in violence? We can't say. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the closest example is New York, and they seem to have the exact opposite experience. Well, with that being said, I guess my question is, you were talking about, Max, um, access to guns, and we know that there isn't actually a lot of access to guns here directly from Chicago, that people in Chicago who are using guns and gun crimes are getting them from different places, Indiana, Wisconsin being other places where you can get it. Um, My question is, if we're looking to reduce the crime, but it's so easy to get guns from another place, you can go... 40 minutes past, you know, Chicago into Indiana and purchase a gun. What are some of your suggestions in terms of being able to combat that type of gun violence when people are just going to go across the border and get it from a different location? And Amy, Amy should jump in on this one as well. Exactly. And I think from a law enforcement perspective, she's going to be great to talk about this. Sure. Um, well, I, I think it's worth thinking about. So, you know, in the current legal landscape, um, the thought of passing new gun laws is something that I think strikes a lot of people as as just as maybe perhaps unrealistic. Um, there just doesn't seem to be much appetite at the national level or in, in a lot of state legislatures uh, for doing that. So, but one shouldn't stop necessarily there and think that's the only way to to resolve gun violence is necessarily to um, to pass gun laws. I think, I think there, there, there may be certain legislation that could help. Uh, it's also worth remembering that, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of, a lot of the individuals who, get, who use guns in crimes, they obtain those weapons shortly after purchase. So it's not like, you know, you, you often hear that stat quoted about there being you know, 270 million guns in circulation in the U.S. How could we possibly do anything about gun violence given how many guns are out there? You know, most guns are, are, are sitting in the hands of citizens who probably never use them in any crime. They're going to sit in a, in a basement or in a locker somewhere. Um, it's really, there's the handful of, of guns that get kind of diverted from that large market for legal guns into the underground gun market. Uh, and, and it's, it's not necessarily a very, a, a very large number, but if you can find a way to help kind of, um, reduce the trickle of guns into that market and make it more difficult for the folks who would want to use a gun for, you know, to carry out a gun crime, that's really where I would think, you know, to target legislation. Um, but as I was going to say, it's not, you know, it's not just about gun legislation. You can also try to, 
um, help people who would otherwise uh, sort of enter the, the either the, the drug trade where again there's a lot of gun carrying involved in that um, help help young people especially who would get into these social media disputes where the resolution seems to be oftentimes to pull out a gun and go um, and go after one's one's adversaries to help them stop and think about what they're doing and not engage in that kind of behavior and there have been some interventions that have shown uh, I think tremendous success in getting people to sort of basically change change the way they think change the way they they behave uh, without necessarily um, directly addressing access to guns because that's again proven to just be very difficult in this current legal environment Amy what do you think about that from your perspective uh, I agree that well a lot of people might not have a lot of appetite for passing um, gun laws about individual gun ownership I do think that one of the things you pointed out in your report in particular was how much more deadly a lot of the weapons that are getting into the hands of the people in um, this these neighborhoods are they are now nine millimeters they are 38 calibers there are very few revolvers being used on the streets anymore they're almost all semi-automatic weapons and i well i have my own issues with the idea of how people um interpret the second amendment i will say that <laughs> i find it hard to believe that there can't be some creative way to limit the manufacture and sell of such deadly weapons to almost anyone who walks in the door. And, and I don't think there's a lack of will for that. And when we're talking about somebody like Trump and, and all of the people who support the idea that we just want to take the guns out of law-abiding citizens' hands, I think that that's why they like to scapegoat a place like Chicago. Because if you look back on it, for, since 1931, we've had a Democratic mayor in Chicago. Of 50 aldermen, one is a Republican. All right. We have a Republican alderman? One, <laughs> yeah. Wow. He, I think he used to be a fireman, and, and he, was, he seems like a very good man. Okay. Napolitano, Napolitano is, I think, his name. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, we're a highly Democratic area where President Obama worked on the streets as a community organizer and where Hillary Clinton was born and raised in the suburbs. So for that purpose, we were a very easy target. So in his you know, campaign of misinformation, saying that we still had one of the um, stiffest gun laws was an easy thing to say. Um, but more than that, we're also in the middle of the country right? We're a big attraction to tourists and making us an object of fear across the country is so convenient That's interesting. for somebody who wants to say, look at these liberals out there making the world unsafe by trying to take your guns away. And I think that's really the message he was trying to send. And there was no deeper look at who's actually at risk, why those people are at risk, because if I'm walking down the street by Navy Pier, I'm very unlikely to see anybody with a gun on their person. If I'm in Englewood, I'm most likely to, that's where I'm most likely to see it. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of points to score um, coming from a uh, Republican standpoint by dragging Chicago. And I think that seems to be the, the theme here. Um, I think we're going to kind of move past a little bit of this stuff here. Now that we have a better grip of the facts um, 
rel- as Chicago relative to other places in the country. Um, I'm going to talk about how these situations sort of play out from a legal perspective. Uh, this is where we're really going to lean on Amy Thompson. Um, our friends at the Chicago Sun-Times have done a lot of research on this topic. Uh, we should point out, interestingly enough, that the Chicago Police Department stopped publishing its annual reports in 2010, which is uh, suspicious at best. <laughs> um, and what- now, disclaimer, CPD's a client of mine. Uh, and they're good people. Um, but uh, they'd actually been doing this since 1965, and they stopped in 2010. So a lot of these statistics are being, um, from my understanding, hand-counted by reporters and folks like Max, right? To be clear, I don't count any statistics by hand. Okay, <laughs> sure. Computers do the work. I don't know. Use an abacus. <laughs> students, right? Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Some grad student somewhere is doing it. Yeah. Um, but according to the Sun-Times, uh, in 2016, total arrests in Chicago were lowest since 2001. Total arrests came in at about 50,000 on the year, which was down from 69,000 in 2015. The steepest decline in arrests were in areas uh, that, if you're familiar with Chicago or know, were troubled areas, Englewood and Austin. Um, arrests in just about every category have fallen, not just for violent crimes. Uh, narcotic arrests obviously were cut in half in 2016, but this is probably due to changing drug policies in the city and the Illinois decriminalization of um, possession of small mar- marijuana. But nonetheless, in 2016, the same year that we had this surge in crime, we had this strong downward trend in arrests. Um, Amy, can you shed a light on some of these trends? What what other trends have you noticed? Um, and, and what really do we have to say about crime rising at the same time that arrests are falling? Um, I, I don't know that crime overall is rising. In fact, I That's think fair, yeah. crime overall is still declining and has been declining for a long time. I think what you're seeing is that um, there people are shooting more, but less than last year. So th- that might be at a decline, and and that there there are actually more deadly weapons is one of the other reasons that you're seeing so much harm. It's also very public the shootings that are going on in Chicago, um, and and that's kind of a newer trend. It's it's always been public. There's always been this this idea of the drive-by, but these are, these are more random seeming. Um, if you look at the trends overall, it doesn't look like somebody who is closely related to somebody else. Like used to be you could trace back what the purpose of the shooting was. And, and now it's, it's kind of harder other than just generally trying to establish a reputation or to exert revenge for slights that are harder to trace. Does it seem like then that like using a gun is almost a more normalized measure or way to resolve a dispute than before? I absolutely think that that's true. And I think not only is that true, but that it, it seems to be happening almost younger and younger. So this is a cultural problem. I think it is a cultural problem in the way that the it's been normalized for people who live in those neighborhoods. It's very common when you talk to people, um, victims of crime, witnesses to crime, um, and clients who are accused of these, that they're used to the idea of hearing a gunshot and not even reacting. Like on, uh, several people in Chicago have been shot on basketball courts in the parks in the middle of the day, let alone you know 4 a.m. when there are 
children out still because it's not the same culture because they haven't had the same opportunity. They don't have the same expectations um, about what their life is going to be. And they live in an area where it is constantly trauma. If you are woken up at 4 a.m. on a regular basis because there's breaking glass from gunshots. Or even just bad news. Or bad news constantly about getting the bad news. person that, that was in school with you or the person who stopped going to school with you, who, who might end up in jail or who might have been shot. And that's a normal occurrence. Um, and, and, and certainly, if you look at the statistics, it's not every person in these neighborhoods that, that is the victim. Of, but it is certainly on a lot of the streets and a lot of the corners. So the problem, if I hear you correctly, really feeds upon itself as children become more acclimatized to this kind of violence, they're more likely to commit it? I, I think it's not just that they're more likely to commit it, but they're less likely to react to changing it in their neighborhoods. Like you can't just, just because you're not perpetrating it, it's so normal that you don't even know that you're supposed to try to change it. And, not, and you feel so powerless about changing anything when nothing is, no one is reacting to the trauma you're experiencing all the time. So I think for that, that's one of the major reasons. And I do think that even law enforcement in Chicago and the state's attorney and the Chicago police are trying to be more community-based. They're trying to outreach and do things like community uh, courts. Um, but I think it's so deep of a problem that I think it's, it's, it's going to take a long time. But at least I do think there's a recognition in Chicago and in the government that, that things need to change on that level, which is, is really encouraging to me. What, what do you notice about some of the things we were talking about a minute ago with arrest rates and you know, numbers and things like that? There's sort of a, a topic that's been kind of looming over this conversation, which I'm going to um, we'll probably, you know, we're going to get to the, we'll call the Laquan McDonald effect. Um, if, if you could talk about that, how that may be impacting the way that um, law enforcement sort of operates in the city even, and how that, the different changes in practices um, could manifest in, you know, occurrences and other things. Well, I was reading Max's study, and one of the things that I noticed, uh, and we t he talked about it earlier, was the contact cards. And, um, but even more than just the idea that, that the police are stopping those, those stops on the street is what those stops in the street really mean to those localities. It really broke down the trust between everybody that lives in those neighborhoods and all of the police. Because it's just like, I always think, and this shows my age, um, I always think about apartheid and actually having to carry around an identification card. That's what it's like in these neighborhoods. People, the only way people know you is by some kind of gang affiliation or lack of gang affiliation. And, and every encounter is a confrontation. That's what it was like. But it is very possible that when those stops stop being made, which was a direct result of the Department of Justice report, um, as a result of the Laquan McDonald incident, um, that maybe some people who had guns available felt more free 
to carry them from place to place and use them. Um, but the reasoning behind why the police stopped was not a recommendation by the police that they stop engaging people in the neighborhoods. Right. It was a recommendation that they do it constitutionally, that they have a reason or that they become parts of the community. And, and fortunately, that is what they're looking to do. But there's a big resistance from people who have done something the same way for decades. And that's cultural, too. The, the police department and how they behave is a culture. And they believe very firmly, I think, especially people who are veterans, that that's the safest way for them to act so that they aren't in harm's way. And so changing that culture and, and really making it a partnership between people in the community and the police is not an automatic thing. It's a great goal, but right. it's a lot of work. So hopefully that's where it's going. But I do think it's a direct result of Laquan McDonald and the DOJ report. That's what it seems to be. And from discussions that even you and I have had um, in, in the past, it, it seems as though uh, the policing as a practice is changing in Chicago at the same time that crime trends themselves are changing. And it's, it's manifesting in, uh, in a lot of different ways, obviously. Um, it's probably a good place for us to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. So, Amy, just to go back on your your last issue that you were talking about in terms of the culture between police officers and the culture in these south side, west side um, neighborhoods, what are your thoughts in terms of fixing that culture? What are any solutions possibly that you can have in terms of police officers' culture versus culture for the trauma that these young people are facing and then um, as people get older, then they are the ones, you know, committing the crimes? What are your thoughts on that? I think what needs to happen and what is starting to happen is that they need to change completely the training of how police officers learn to deal with people in the communities that they work in. I feel like they need to be part of the communities. They need to go back to the beat system where they're in a location over time so that they get to know who the woman who sits on that porch, who knows the kid down the street is, and why it's important to that woman that that kid get an education. Because that happens in Austin and Englewood all the time. You know, there's actually something... Uh as a lawyer who's in my practice has worked a lot with the police department, there's an interesting catch-22 with those solutions because CPD and uh, the Chicago Fire Department have tried those in the past, um, namely allowing officers to go back to the neighborhoods from which they came because they have connections and they make good B-cops there. They know the people. They know how things work there. Um, and then they very quickly get sued by the ACLU for actually racially discriminating uh, 
basically they're accused of sending black officers to black neighborhoods, uh, Hispanic officers mm-hmm. to Hispanic mm-hmm. neighborhoods, and that kind of thing. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not suggesting that uh, the people that are part of the beat have to look the same as everybody else in that neighborhood. Mm. I'm suggesting that if you're there all the time, if you're not necessarily with people who look exactly like you, but you're there all the time, you start to get an understanding of what the difference is between how somebody lives that you police really is compared to what you are. And the fear goes away, not just for the people in the community, but for the police officers too. I just think it's important to connect to the community. It doesn't have to be someone who's from there originally. Okay. So there's that, but there's also, you know, demilitarizing the police. Um, the, The big guns aren't just on the street with the people who are accused. They're also militarized just like in St. Louis, just like in Baltimore. And that makes it a lot harder to connect with people and a lot quicker for them to use guns too. Yeah, and just, I I wanna maybe go back to the the point about the culture and and the community. What I think, the way Amy expressed, I think was was right, that there's just a lot of trauma that folks who grow up in some of these neighborhoods experience, cumulative trauma that by the time they reach um, adolescence, uh, their teenage years and early adulthood, uh, you know, it, it changes. It changes how one thinks, how one reacts to slights, um, how likely one is to uh, maybe reach for for a gun or another physical solution to a problem, um, and, and and when they feel like they're really back into a corner and need to respond in a way that um, in a way that saves face. And it, it's it's uh, it's certainly not to say that I think the um, that there isn't work to be done repairing police community relations. There certainly is. Uh, but there's also ways of, um, you know, interventions that you can imagine happening in schools, for example, where um, you have adolescents um, going through their formative years. And if you can if you can train them to, you know, stop and think about their behavior before, say, taking an action, a rash action that could result in um, hurting someone or themselves, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's been shown to do quite a bit of good. I mean, there's, um, there's certainly a study that the, the crime lab did. Um, several years ago of, of um, a program called Becoming a Man, which is a, a mentorship program run out of, um, uh, by an organization called Youth Guidance in Chicago Public Schools uh, that has shown pretty tremendous effects in terms of reducing the likelihood that participants in this program um, are arrested for violent offenses and increasing the likelihood of graduating high school. Uh, so there are, there are alternatives to just, you know, kind of um, uh, law enforcement approaches to this. There are, there, are, there are a number of social service approaches, I think, that could be explored more um, and they can and can possibly change what I think a lot of folks refer to as, as, as sort of the culture of violence in, in these neighborhoods by just sort of reprogramming people's thought processes a bit and making them a less likely to actually reach for a violent solution to their problems. And the news isn't all sad, right, Magnon? There's some happy news out there about this. Yes, there is. I mean, and this is a pretty heavy topic, much heavier than we usually talk about here at At The Bar. And we do want to end, you know, and get moving with some more uplifting statistics. So some recent developments here in Chicago are things like the number of people shot and killed in Chicago is down 19% this year. The number of people wounded is down 14%. The total shootings is down about 13%. And the total of homicides is down about 11%. So with all of that, on the year 2017, it seems has been a better year crime-wise than 2016, and that's a pretty great development. So at the risk of retreading some of the ground we've uh, already covered, 
Um, Amy, Max, why do you think we're seeing that slight decrease? Well, more than a slight decrease. That's an appreciable decrease this year. Yeah, no, it's certainly an appreciable decrease. And then after, again, after how bad 2016 was, a very welcome one. Um, it's too early, of course, to actually uh, be able to pinpoint any particular reason why we're seeing this decrease, but some promising things that we've been seeing. We're uh, good at speculating wildly on sure. this podcast, so go um, ahead. Let's, let's speculate wildly. Um, some of the biggest decreases we've seen in violence have actually been in some of the some of the neighborhoods that were hardest hit in 2016 and historically have been among the most violent in the city, like Englewood. Uh, Englewood's seen a pretty dramatic decline uh, in, in violence this year. I believe that in terms of shootings, this uh, this year has been safer in Englewood, I think, than even 2015 was. So not only did they uh, correct for the, the massive gains that happened in 2016, but they've, they've even gone further. And for our audience who live outside Chicago, Englewood is traditionally one of the more dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago, correct? That's right, right. It's a neighborhood on the south side of the city that's been um, traditionally among, among the more violent. Um, and when thinking about what's what's well, what's happened differently in Englewood, why this year, why, why Englewood? Um, one one initiative, at least, that's been underway there is one by the Chicago Police Department to um, empower commanders and give them better information about um, historical crime patterns in their districts uh, and allow them to really m be more flexible in how they allocate resources, mm -hmm. uh, where they deploy officers, when. Um, and that's that's an effort that um, that the Crime Lab has been helping the city and the, and the police department with. And we're optimistic that that's played at least some part in, in why we've been seeing such dramatic reductions uh, in a place like Englewood. So the people on the ground can be more responsive to what they're seeing on a daily basis rather than simply taking orders from on high about larger strategic objectives. Exactly. Got it. Amy? Uh, I think that's great. I, I wasn't aware of, the, I'm aware of a lot of the social programs, but that's one that is really important. I think that's great. And it, Englewood has been, I, I've worked in areas around Englewood as a defense attorney for a long time. When I was in juvenile court, that was the location from which I got all of my clients. Mm -hmm. And um, because it's, the courtrooms are structured so that they're from areas. And, and it would be nice if those areas got a little bit of hope, even from anything, because the relief there could be so wide-reaching. You can see some of the other places that are down there that have like block uh, community block organizations that have been a lot safer for a lot for a long time because the community took some ownership um, of of them with the help of other social programs. So maybe if there's a relaxing in those worst areas. Um, like the work that's being done in Lawndale. Um, there's a lot of partnership in Lawndale with a lot of different community service agencies. And that's another rough neighborhood. It's correct? a very rough neighborhood on the near west side, um, near southwest. And, and in 2016, it was very um, violent. But there has been a lot of outreach and, and a lot of, of um drug treatment facilities that have been offering more support in that area. And that's where the first community law center is um, going to open. And, and even knowing that that's coming has empowered a lot of the people there mm. to feel like they're going to have more of a say in how their community goes forward. And on that happy note, I think it's time for us to take a quick break. Need a lawyer? Steve? 
I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. So before we wrap up today, we're going to play a game we like to call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Uh, The rules are pretty straightforward. I've done a little bit of poking around the interwebs. I found one law that is real and still on the books somewhere in the United States, but is just really weird and strange. I've made another one up completely, and I'm going to poll everyone here, guests and co-hosts alike, to see if they can distinguish legal fact from fiction. Everyone ready? Yeah. Sure. All right. So two laws. Which one is real? Option number one. In West Virginia, it is illegal, a misdemeanor punishable by a $100 fine and as many as six months in jail to mock someone for refusing to participate in a duel. That's option number one. I thought it was particularly fitting, given what Max was saying about uh, the culture of challenges. I'm not endorsing that law here in Buckingham. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, th- I think duels, like, if we just went back to a system where, you know, all this behavior was settled by saber and sword fight, I think we'd probably see a lot, a big drop in the violence rate. Handle it like gentlemen. Don't shoot each other. Are you announcing your mayoral candidacy? <laughs> on, 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 on a fencing platform? <laughs> Very pro sword. unorthodox. Yeah. But... yeah, you know what? Maybe. All right. So that's option number one. Number two. North Carolina imposes excise taxes on illegal substances. For instance, marijuana, the use of that is illegal there, as far as I know, but it can be taxed at a rate of $3.50 per gram, cocaine at a rate of $50 per gram, and $200 per gram for any other narcotic sold by weight. That's option number two. So first one, West Virginia dueling. Second option, North Carolina, uh, taxing illegal drugs. <laughs> Amy, why don't you kick us off? What do you think? Well, I'm, I'm torn because I can see how West Virginia would not want dual taunting. And I can also see how the tobacco lobby would really want to tax its competitors. Um. <laughs> so I'm going to go with North Carolina. All right, I'm writing that down. Amy's North Carolina. Jack? Um. I have a lot of questions about option number two. Who collects those taxes? Um, I I don't know how that would work. But uh, I'm from Pennsylvania, specifically I'm about 45 minutes away from Morgantown, West Virginia. That state is very weird. Um, <laughs> no offense to anyone who's listening, but if you live there, you know. We love our West Virginia listeners. So I'm going, uh, I'm going option one pretty hard. All right, Jack. Max. Uh, strongly in favor of option two here. Um, I'm pretty sure I've come across uh, on eBay before. Don't ask me why. Uh, <laughs> um, on the dark web. eBay or Silk Road? Yeah. No, no tour, no tour involved. Uh, um, there are these um, like essentially like marijuana tax receipts. Uh, there are these little stickers that show that you've paid your marijuana tax. There's some historical curiosity, but they at least suggest to me that some levels of government somewhere have, in fact, taxed substances that are otherwise illegal to possess in the first place. So I'm going to, on the basis of that, uh, assume that uh, maybe number two is true. But you thought that knowledge would never come in handy. <laughs> I knew the day would come. Yeah. <laughs> Megna? 
Well, I tend to find myself to be a, I like random facts type of things. So I do find myself around the interwebs looking up these types of things, even as a kid. I, before the internet, I'm telling my age now, um, I used to, you know, get those facts books and, you know, find out weird facts about certain states, which is why um, West Virginia's with the dueling seems very real to me. So I'm going to go with number one. All right. Actually, number two is the correct one. Ah. The North Carolina law. They impose taxes on illegal substances. But consolation for those who guessed West Virginia, that was a real law. It was repealed in 2010. All right. So that's a, a, a lot of, of a trick question. way too long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, it's our episode for today. I want to thank our guests, Matt Kapuzin and Amy Thompson, for joining us and giving us some insight and understanding about these ever-thorny but incredibly important issues. I also want to thank everyone who makes this machine run, including my co-hosts today, Jack Sanker and Mignon Martin, along with our sound crew, Ricardo Islas and Steve Weirich. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll the heck out of us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for all of us here at the CBA, this is John Amarillo, and we'll see you soon at the bar.